Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to that passage he just read, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we will get there eventually. It's going to take us a bit uh, to set things up, but we'll get there here in just a little while. Uh, Happy New Year to you. Uh, Hope you had a great Christmas season. Uh, We missed seeing you the past couple weeks. If you didn't already know, we took uh, two weeks off around Christmas and New Year's to allow our staff and volunteers time to travel and rest and be with the family. Uh, I know that probably seems like an odd thing for a church to do is take Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve uh, off. I was talking to a guy at my gym and he was like, "Uh, y'all took Christmas off? Isn't that like... Like your thing, you're a Christian, right? Like, it, isn't that like y'all's thing is Christmas? Uh, and I was like, that's fair. That's a fair question. Uh, we've actually found it though to be a pretty helpful practice for us as a church. Generally, we just take one week off. We took two weeks off this year, uh, but we found it to be a really helpful practice for a lot of reasons. Uh, one being that it just reminds us that this right here is not the totality of what church is, right? That the church at its core is a group of people. This really is just one, albeit very important, just one thing that the church does together. And so if nothing else, maybe the past couple of weeks was a reminder of that. Uh, but all of that said... I am abundantly happy to be back with you guys this Sunday, uh, back at it in terms of Sunday gatherings, and starting a brand new teaching series, or at least sort of brand new. Uh, It's a series that we've done every single year, going back almost all the way to the beginning of our church, that we've called Formation. And believe it or not, uh, it's not actually a series based on the Beyonce song, Formation. Uh, That would be cool. That sounds exciting. I'm sure a church somewhere has done that before. Uh, But that's not what this series is about. Uh, This is actually a series about what theologians call spiritual formation, which is just a fancy way of talking about the art and the science of how we change as human beings, and specifically how followers of Jesus change to become more like Jesus over time. That's our goal. And, and, you know, I think that idea, uh, how we change as human beings, it is actually an idea that an awful lot of us are very interested in. And, and I don't think you have to look very far to see that, especially this time of the calendar year. So at this point, uh, at least some of us are about seven days into our New Year's resolutions. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you how it's going because we want this to be an encouraging space for all of us. Uh, but you're about seven days into your New Year's resolutions. Uh, and what are New Year's resolutions, if not attempts at change in our lives, right? That's what they are. We, we want to change, and we think New Year's resolutions are going to help us get there. So, so most of us, in one way or another, do want to change. We want to grow. We want to improve. We want to become healthier types of people, whether that's physically healthier or emotionally healthier, or psychologically or spiritually or whatever the case may be. I mean, for, for all of the platitudes that we love to throw out in our society, like be true to who you are and be yourself, a lot of us actually don't want to just be ourselves indefinitely. 
We actually want to grow and change and improve as human beings. We want to become at least somewhat different types of people eventually. And at least once a year, we seem to collectively realize as a society that if change is going to happen in our lives, it is going to happen largely through our habits. We're not just going to wake up one day and all of a sudden be a healthier person. We're going to have to work at it over time. We're going to have to set up rhythms and habits and patterns of behavior in our lives that we participate in, ideally on a recurring basis, that create a desired end result. That, in a nutshell, I think is the premise of New Year's resolutions. And whether we realize it or not, a lot of how we change spiritually actually works that way too. It it happens largely through our habits So our habits, the things that we participate in over and over and over again, are a huge part of how we become more like Jesus as his people. Jesus himself alludes to this idea in a story that he tells in the Gospels about two different types of people. One person, he says, is like a person who builds his house on a shaky foundation, and the other like someone who builds their house on a solid foundation. And then Jesus says plainly in the story that the difference between those two types of people is that the first one just heard what Jesus said, and the second one put it into practice. That's the difference, he says. The the difference in Jesus's mind on some level between health and unhealth, maturity and immaturity is just one word, and that's practice. And that word practice is exactly what it sounds like. It, It implies regular, ongoing, and especially repetitive action. That's what practice is. So Jesus seems to think that there is a direct relationship in our life between repetition and formation. We we become the people that we are largely based on the things that we do over and over again. So each year as a church, beginning in January, we take a month or maybe two months to focus on one particular practice or habit that has the ability to change us as God's people over time. So in past years, we've covered habits like prayer and Bible reading and rest and mission. And last year, fasting. That was a fun one. And by fun, I mean really, really difficult. I don't know if any of y'all felt that when we went through it last year. But we've done all these different types of practices in the past. And historically, followers of Jesus have called these things spiritual disciplines or maybe spiritual practices or just habits. But whatever you want to call them, they are simply things that we do repeatedly that can transform us over time into the image of Jesus. That's the idea behind them. And that at its core is why we participate in these things. Not because we think we're better than anybody else, not because we think God's affections for us are dependent upon us participating on these things, not any of that. We do them, we participate in them simply because we want to become more like Jesus and we know that a central piece of how we will get there is through practices like these and participating in them. Does that make sense? So this year... We are focusing this series as a whole on this one word, resistance. Resistance. Now, chances are this practice is probably not as familiar to you as others are, like prayer or Bible reading or things like that. 
And that's in part because it hasn't been quite as popular as the other ones throughout history. It's also in part because sometimes this practice of resistance goes by other names. So a lot of followers of Jesus a few hundred years ago described it with the word watchfulness, which is a very interesting word. I don't know that that's one that's in our vocabulary very often, but they called it watchfulness. And they get that from the variety of times, really in the New Testament, that the New Testament authors will encourage us to be watchful or watch out or be on our guard against certain things. So just to give you sort of a smattering of examples here, and we'll put the references for these in the sermon notes that we post later today, if you want to go look at them. But just as a few examples, handful of examples, Jesus tells his disciples at various points to watch and pray so that they don't fall into temptation. He tells them to watch out for false prophets. He tells them to watch and beware of hypocrisy in their life. He tells us to watch out so that no one deceives us. He tells us to keep watch because we don't know when Jesus will return. He tells us to watch out and be on our guard against greed. The New Testament authors will go on to tell us to watch out for those who cause division, to watch our life and doctrine, to be watchful about the schemes of the devil. More on that in a few weeks in our series. They tell us to watch out for unbelief in our hearts. And believe it or not, there are quite a few more where that list came from. So this is a bit of a theme in the New Testament. The biblical authors seem to think that we should regularly watch out as followers of Jesus for things that could threaten our faith. Now, I want to be very clear, that's not to say that being against things is all it means to follow Jesus. I think that's really important that we remember. I think there are people in our world, self-proclaimed followers of Jesus, who functionally believe that, that all it means to follow Jesus is just to be against things nonstop. That's not my point at all. I think there are lots of things that we should be for as God's people. But at the same time, If you don't think there are ever any threats, any oppositional forces to you following Jesus, I think you're being a bit naive. If you think everything in our world is just rooting for you, cheering you on as you seek to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow Jesus, I think you're going to be a little bit caught off guard by the opposition that you regularly face in doing so. So so we talk often around our church about the things we want to be for as followers of Jesus, the things that we want to champion in our world as followers of Jesus. But in this series, for the next month or so, we are going to talk about some of the things that we are also called to be on guard against, things that we are called to resist in our journey with Jesus. So all of this, I think, is why the scriptures will regularly employ warlike imagery to describe the Christian life, which is saying something for a faith that generally advocates for peace, right? So let me just show you a few examples of what I mean by this language in the New Testament. We'll put these up on the screen. So Romans chapter 7, Paul says this, but I see another law at work within me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. 
First Peter chapter two, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And finally, Ephesians chapter six, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and and after you have done everything, to stand. So this type of language, this warlike imagery is threaded throughout the scriptures. So my point is that the Christian life may in fact be a journey or a walk or an experience or any of the other pleasant terms that we like to put around it as followers of Jesus. But one thing it definitely is, according to the Bible, is a battle. It's a war. It's an exercise in resisting opposing forces and standing your ground no matter what. And if you somehow miss that reality, if you don't realize that that is part of following Jesus, chances are you will be caught up in the opposing forces that stand against you. Maybe without even realizing that that's what's happening to you at the moment. And maybe you hear all of that this morning and you go, okay, but doesn't thinking about it that way encourage us to take like a defensive antagonistic posture towards everybody around us? Like, like isn't this mindset, this thinking about the Christian life as a war, as a battle, isn't this how we all end up as either like culture warrior talking heads on the news or on the streets holding turn or burn signs? Like, isn't that where we all end up if we think about our relationship with Jesus this way? And it's an understandable pushback because I do think there are people that take that posture that claim to follow Jesus. But here's the thing, I would argue that that mentality, that posture in them is a misunderstanding of these ideas more than it's a proper understanding of them. People who respond in those sorts of ways, who take that sort of defensive antagonistic posture towards everyone and everything, They've latched onto the idea of the Christian life as a war, but they've missed entirely what it says it's a war against. So, for instance, look back with me at that passage we just saw, Ephesians chapter 6. We'll put it back up on the screen. I want you to notice the language that Paul uses here. It says that this war is, quote, not against flesh and blood. Do you see that? Not against flesh and blood. Who is made of flesh and blood? People, right? Human beings. So the point that Paul is making in Ephesians chapter six is that we are in fact in a war, but that war is not against other people. It's not a war fought by traditional means, with traditional weapons, with traditional tactics. It is a different type of conflict entirely that we are in. So here's what I'm getting at. This is so important for us to realize, I think, especially right now in our cultural climate in America. Seen rightly, understanding your spiritual enemies that we're going to talk about here in the rest of this series, understanding your spiritual enemies, understanding that those things are real and really are opposed to the way of Jesus, actually prevents you from making other people into your enemies. Your, your family member who is not quite following Jesus, 
and claims to. Your, your coworker who drives you absolutely crazy. Your neighbor who votes or thinks or believes very differently than you do. Those people are not your enemies. Those are people that God loves and desires relationship with. The real enemies are not the flesh and blood people standing in front of you. The real enemies are the things that have taken those people captive. Are you following me? Which means that the solution for us as followers of Jesus is not to hate people or argue at people or dismiss and distance ourselves from people that we disagree with. The solution is to help those people find the freedom from the captivity that they're in. That's what we're getting at here. In other words, the less you believe in spiritual enemies in the world, the more you will make enemies out of people in your life. There's something about our wiring as human beings where our soul just searches for an enemy. We want there to be an enemy. And the truth is, we have enemies as followers of Jesus. But when we insist that people in our life are the enemies, we're not looking deep enough. The enemies are the animating forces behind all of that. Understanding your spiritual enemies actually prevents you from making other people into your enemies. So all of that brings us, finally, to answering the important question that we're trying to answer in this series, which is who are our enemies as followers of Jesus? Or or maybe to put it more accurately in light of everything that we just said, What are our enemies as followers of Jesus? What are the actual enemies that we face? And I think our passage from Ephesians 2 actually does a really good job summarizing what those enemies are. So take a look with me there. If you've got it open, we'll also put it up on the screen. Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Here's what it says. As for you, Paul says, you were dead. In your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So stop right there with me here for a bit. If you have been around church very long, you have probably heard this passage before. Wildly popular passage in church world. And you have probably heard it described as a passage about how God saves us from sin. And in a way, that is what the passage is about. That's true. God saved us from sin. That's gloriously true, even. But I do think summarizing this passage that way does sort of ignore some of the detailed, specific language that Paul uses in the passage itself. It feels like there's more in here that he wants us to get out of this passage than just God saved us from sin. Otherwise, it's a very wordy way of saying a very simple idea, right? So if you pay close attention in those verses we just read, in describing the situation that we were in prior to God saving us, Paul actually lists three specific oppositional forces, or we could just say enemies, that we faced. Three different things that sort of carried us along when we were dead in our sin. He starts listing them in verse 2, and I want to actually show you these in the passage itself so that you can see it. First, he highlights the ways of this world. The ways of this world, in verse 2, 
Second, also in verse 2, is the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which is Paul's language for Satan, the enemy. And then in verse 3, he highlights the cravings of our flesh. Three enemies. The ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, and the cravings of our flesh. According to Paul, those were the things that Jesus died specifically to save us from. And I would argue that those three things continue to be what we are called to resist as followers of Jesus now that we have been saved from them and liberated from their power. So theologians going back hundreds of years in the way of Jesus have summarized these three enemies with one word each. They call them the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. That listing is obviously in a slightly different order than they were in Ephesians chapter 2, but you get the idea. These three things in overarching categories are our enemies as followers of Jesus. If you read through the Bible as a whole, and particularly the New Testament, you will notice that these three ideas get brought up and cited time and time and time again as things that God has rescued us from as his people and things that we are still called to resist the pull towards as God's people. We are called to resist the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, chances are, those three words feel a bit old school to some of us. When we hear the world brought up negatively in a church setting, maybe it like conjures up images for you of like a fundamentalist Baptist preacher warning about worldliness, which somehow that word has like five extra syllables in it when he says it. He's always from like West Tennessee somewhere. Like it's just, it's, it's something like that. Maybe that's kind of what you think of when you hear the world discussed in that manner. Maybe when you hear the word flesh used in the same way, it might have like hellfire and brimstone vibes to you. And many of us, when we hear people talk about the devil or Satan, we think the guy with like red hairy skin and a pitchfork straight out of an SNL skit, or maybe for the modern generation, a little Nas X music video, either way, you know? (laughs) So maybe that's the picture that comes into your mind when you hear people use that type of language. Likely, all of these words feel just a little bit dated to us in our modern world. But that said, let me assure you that each of these three things are very much alive and well in the 21st century. And more pointedly, together, they are likely responsible for just about all of the opposition and all of the frustration you face in becoming more like Jesus. If, if you feel stuck or stalled out in your relationship with Jesus right now, there is a pretty good chance that one or more of those things is involved. And I'll also say it like this, maybe a little more pointedly, if right now in your life you claim to follow Jesus, And in 10 years from now, you no longer claim to follow Jesus. I can just about guarantee you that one or more of those things on that list are responsible for that change. Simply put, if you want to grow in your relationship with Jesus, if you want to become more like Jesus, and if you want to simply persevere in your relationship with Jesus, you need to know and you need to understand those three enemies. So we've got three objectives in this series over the next three weeks. First, we want to know our enemies. 
We want to be able to recognize them and call them for what they are. Second, we want to understand how those enemies fight. We want to know what their strategies are. We want to know what their tricks are and how we might be vulnerable personally for those things, to those things. And lastly, and arguably most importantly for this series, we want to learn how to resist and overcome those enemies. We want to know how to, in the language of those passages from earlier, successfully wage war against those enemies. That's our roadmap for the next three weeks together. Know our enemies, understand how they fight, and learn to resist and overcome them. In the military, they actually have a word for this type of process that we're going to endeavor to do the next three weeks. They call it gathering intelligence. So a friend of mine who's in the military told me that intelligence gathering is objectively the most important war preparation activity that the military does. It's more important than training, more important than purchasing and preparing weaponry, more important than strategy, and on down the list. And here's why I think he says that. Because without good intelligence, all of that other stuff that you do in preparation can only be so helpful. Gathering intelligence actually precedes everything else, and in many ways, it shapes the way that you do everything else. If you don't know what type of firepower your enemy has, if you don't know what type of terrain they're used to fighting on, if you don't know how many soldiers they have and what technology and what weapons they have, there is a pretty severe limit to how helpful any of your other preparation can be. I heard it said once that power without intelligence would be like a hammer with no hand to wield it. So for the rest of our series, the next month, what we're going to do in essence is gather our intelligence. We're going to discuss what exactly these enemies are, how they tend to operate, all with the goal of helping us become successful in resisting them as followers of Jesus. We'll do a week talking about the world, a week on the flesh, and a week on the devil before we're done. We're also going to give you some practices, some tangible things that you can do throughout this series to train to resist these things in your heart, in your mind. More on that here at the end. But what we want to do through this series is help all of us live aware of the enemies that we do face. Today... Before we're done, I just want to give you the SparkNotes version. Are SparkNotes still a thing? We had a debate about this in our teaching team. I see some head nods. So SparkNotes were like this thing. You would go online and you would read a summary of a book that you were supposed to read in school. And it would tell you the things you needed to know about the book so that you could pass the test. That's not how SparkNotes intended them to, people to use their product, but that's how everybody used their product. Uh, until your teacher learned about SparkNotes and crafted the test in such a way that would expose if you read SparkNotes or read the book, which was just a whole horrible development in the whole process. But that's what SparkNotes were. Anyway, I digress. I'm going to give you the SparkNotes version this morning of what we're going to talk about the rest of the series. This is the quick summary of where we're going the next three weeks. This is actually from a guy that we quote a good bit around here named John Mark Colmer. He's a pastor out of Portland who wrote a book on this whole idea, these three enemies called Live No Lies. Would highly recommend that book to you as always. Any book that we recommend is not going to be like one-to-one. We wouldn't say we agree with everything 110%, but overall, his book, Live No Lies, is insanely helpful. Just don't judge me for how much of his content I steal in the rest of the series, if you read the book. (laughs) 
So fair, fair disclosure there, but Live No Lies is the name of his book. In that book, he offers a sentence that I think summarizes how the world, the flesh, and the devil tend to work in unison with one another to create problems in our life. How they tend to work in tandem with one another. He puts it like this. We'll put this up on the screen. This is the summary of the rest of the series. The problem for us as followers of Jesus is deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires which are normalized in a sinful society. That's the problem. That's a summary of the problem. Deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires which are normalized in a sinful society. Deceitful ideas refers to the devil. The scriptures tell us that one of Satan's favorite tactics, if not his primary tactic, is deceit. Lies, untruths. Jesus says that when Satan lies, he, quote, speaks his native language. Satan's goal is to plant deceptive ideas in the minds of individuals and even societies as a whole. That's his objective. Deceptive ideas. Then, second item, disordered desires refers to the flesh. That's the flesh. They are our base instincts and desires that because of sin are now all out of whack. They're disordered. We, we want things that we shouldn't want. We don't at all want things that we should want. We, we want things in the wrong order and in the wrong proportions. We have disordered desires as human beings. And then finally, all of that becomes normalized in a sinful society. In other words, the world. We live in a world that justifies and rationalizes all of those things. It makes them feel normal or even expected for us to engage in, in a certain way. Deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires which are normalized in a sinful society. That sentence summarizes really well the enemies that we face as followers of Jesus and how they work in tandem with one another to derail our spiritual formation. Now, maybe you showed up this morning, maybe for the first time. Again, welcome. Uh, This is quite the introduction to our church. And maybe it's your first time in church, maybe it's your first time in church in a while, and all of this stuff that I'm talking about today just sounds certifiably crazy to you. To you, this sounds straight out of like the 1600s, 1700s, right? It sounds primitive, it sounds anti-intellectual, it sounds a little backwoods to you, if you're honest. And you're just listening to this going, really? You guys believe this stuff? This is what y'all think is happening in the world? And believe me, I get it. I really do get it. But listen, at the same time, I know of no other way to explain some of the stuff happening in our world right now than this. No other compelling way. So, for instance, let's, let's just pick low-hanging fruit right now in our country. Let's talk about the dynamics surrounding politics in our country right now. Right now, the U.S. is in a situation where there is growing extremism on both sides of the aisle. Now, depending on what side of the aisle you're on, you're probably more aware of the extremism on the other end. But there is growing extremism on both sides of the aisle. 
Some of it is becoming even more bizarre and illogical and militant, even violent. It's becoming quite a problem, if you haven't noticed, which I think all of us have. Some of you might even have people in your biological family or friend groups that hold to some of these extreme views. Some of you had to spend time with those people over the holidays. (laughs) And here's what I'm going to guess if you happen to venture into conversations about that stuff with those people. I'm going to guess that it did not matter how often you sat down with those people and tried to logically reason with them about why their beliefs and convictions are off. It doesn't matter how calmly and rationally and persuasively you try to appeal to them. They are entrenched in their beliefs. They're not changing their mind. Okay, so why is that? Why is it that logic and reason and and calmness tend not to have an impact on those people? Well, the Bible would say, It's because there are actually animating forces behind all of that that are invested in ensuring that those people keep believing what they currently believe. That are ensuring that they keep believing it. It's some combination of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And those things are powerful enough that you will not be able to just reason and explain someone out of their grip that person will need to be liberated from what has a hold on their heart and their mind and their thinking. Am I making sense? You and I and our family members and our friends and every single person in our society are held captive by the world, the flesh, and the devil until we are rescued out of it. And here's where we get to the good news of this morning. Because according to Ephesians chapter 2, that is precisely what Jesus went to the grave and came back from the grave to do. So look back with me at Ephesians chapter 2 one more time. We'll finish out the passage together. Paul says that before the intervening work of God through Jesus, we were all dead in our sins. We were following the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. We were gratifying the desires of our sinful flesh. We were held captive, in other words, to the world, the flesh, and the devil. We were in real bad shape, in other words. But then there's verse four. That verse that starts with the glorious word, but... I heard one pastor describe that word as the most glorious but in the whole Bible, which I thought was a little cheesy and maybe a little irreverent, which is why I didn't say it. I just told you that he said it. The name of the sermon was, I like this but and I cannot lie. If you want to go back and look it up again, that's not my words. That's what he said. But he's got a point, right? He's got a point in what he's saying. Verse four in Ephesians chapter two is a pretty phenomenal shift in the overall tone of the passage. Ephesians two starts off pretty dark, dead in our sin, held captive by the world, the flesh and the devil, and deserving of wrath. But 
But look at verse four. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And not only that, but God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Paul's going off. I don't know if you guys caught this. He's going off. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Okay, there is a lot in that passage. And we do not have time to unpack all of it this morning. (laughs) We'll do a future sermon on that, I promise. So I'm just going to do my best to summarize it for you in the context of our teaching for today, okay? I'm going to summarize what he just said. If you are a follower of Jesus, God has already given you in Christ everything you need to succeed against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Do you believe me? Because that passage just said, God, quote, saved us from those things. Now, I am begging you as a follower of Jesus to not hyper-spiritualize that word saved. When Paul says that Jesus saved us from the world, the flesh, and the devil, he does not mean that we were saved in some sort of immeasurable, esoteric, vague sense of the word. That's not what he's talking about. He means, get this, that God saved us. If you heard your friend say that they were drowning in the ocean and then the Coast Guard brought a helicopter and saved them, what would you think that they meant? I think you would think they meant that the helicopter came, they stooped down into the ocean and they pulled them out such that they were rescued. Okay, that is the sense in which God saved us. When it says that he saved us, it means he saved us. He rescued us out. Now, that, of course, does not mean we are never in danger of being influenced by these things again, right? The the person who's been, been rescued out of the ocean may, in fact, be in danger in the future if they ever go back in the ocean. But it does mean that God has given you and I the power that we need to live unchained and unshackled from the enslaving power of the world, the flesh, and the devil. There is a reason that somewhere around 80% of worship songs say something about our chains being gone or our chains being broken. And you know why? Because it's the most glorious truth in the universe and because you and I tend to forget it. We need the reminder. You and I do not have to say yes to the world, the flesh, or the devil any longer. Because of Jesus, we have the ability to say no. We have the ability to live free. And that's all possible because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Colossians says that he, quote, disarmed the powers and authorities by triumphing over them in the cross. If you follow Jesus, you do not have to go along with these things any longer. Jesus has given you the freedom from them, the ability to spot them, and the power to say no to them to successfully resist them.
in other words. So, what we want to do in this series is learn how to make that somewhat theoretical truth into a practical truth in our lives. We want to learn to make it tangible, to make it our lived experience as followers of Jesus. How do we learn at a day-to-day level to resist the world, the flesh, and the devil? How do we take what we know Jesus accomplished on the cross and, and actualize it in our minds and in our bodies? That's where we're headed the next three weeks. What I want to leave you with today is something that we've put together, posted online at our website called a practice guide. So every year that we do this series, we put together simple, measurable practices that anybody can participate in no matter how long you've been following Jesus. Because as a reminder, Jesus said that we don't change by what we know. We change by what we put into practice. There is a direct link between repetition and formation. So if you want to grow in the things that we're talking about in this series, you will need some ways to put them into practice. So on our website, citychurchnox.com, you can go there once you leave today, you will find a practice guide for this series. And in the practice guide, we have given you three different suggested practices to participate in. One that helps you resist the world, one that helps you resist the flesh, and one that helps you resist the devil. We have typed up a page on each one and how they help specifically. Uh, we're going to unpack all of them in more detail as, as we hit each week in the series. But in the meantime, I would just encourage you to go grab the practice guide on our website and at least start reading your way through it. And then I would encourage you, based on what's in there between this week and next week, to think through what feels like the biggest threat to your life and vitality in Jesus right now. Maybe it's the world, maybe it's the flesh, maybe it's the devil. Maybe you read through them and you're like, I don't know, it kind of feels like they're all getting me right now. Like, it's like a three-on-one WWE situation and I am losing currently. So maybe it's all of them for you. That's totally fine. I love that self-awareness. Uh, so, so maybe you go and you're like, man, I think I need to do all three of these practices during this series, either at the same time or in sequence with one another. But I'd go ahead and read through them, figure out what you feel like is the most pressing need, the most urgent obstacle in your life right now. If you're an overachiever, maybe you go ahead and kickstart one of those practices before next Sunday, all power to you. Uh, or you can wait until we unpack them each following week. Whatever you want to do, but bare minimum, I would look at the practice guide, take some time to discuss it with your life group, prepare your heart and mind for this series. I think this series has the potential to be absolutely pivotal in our endeavors to become more like Jesus. I really think it can, but it's only going to work if we actually go through the effort to put it into practice, as Jesus said. So grab the practice guide online. I think this has the potential to be really formational for our church, hence the name of the series. That wasn't intentional, but fits. Um, So we're going to have some time to respond. This morning, we'll open up the communion tables for followers of Jesus to come remember the body and the blood of Jesus together. We'll sing and celebrate together who Jesus is, what he's made possible for us on the cross. We will rejoice in the victory that Jesus has already achieved on our behalf. And we would ask the Holy Spirit that he would help us learn how to make that victory the operating reality of our life. That's what we're after. Let's pray.